Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. Where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, we preview a two part PBS documentary airing tonight on Connecticut Public Television and nationwide about the youth mental health crisis in America. It's called Hidden in Plain Sight and features conversations with more than 20 young Americans, including a Connecticut resident, Yaniri Acevedo. We talked to her and to filmmaker Eric Ewers just ahead. First, Americans continue to react to Roe v. Wade being overturned by the U.S. Supreme Court five decades after the landmark decision granted federal constitutional protections for abortion. Now, multiple news outlets report that about half of all U.S. states are expected to ban or further restrict access to abortion. The Washington Post reports at least eight states banned the procedure the day the ruling was released. What's your reaction? You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Now, over the weekend, Connecticut residents joined in protests around the state after the Supreme Court ruling. Connecticut Public's Camila Videjo spoke to Samantha Przbilski, a 17-year-old Norwalk resident, on Saturday. I'm so tired of feeling like my voice isn't heard and that I don't have an opinion just because I'm not old enough to vote. But these laws and these awful things that are happening affect me too and this is my way of speaking out and being here and standing together with everybody in solidarity for all of the other states that don't have the protection that Connecticut thankfully has. That's 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Joining us first on Zoom is Claudine Constant who's the Public Policy and Advocacy Director at the ACLU of Connecticut. Claudine, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. I wanted you to respond to what we heard from that young Norwalk resident. Um, I mean, it, the the outrage is fairly justified, and I appreciate uh, this resident for also highlighting the fact that, um, you know, abortion is still safe and legal here in Connecticut. Uh, and so Connecticut residents, if you have an appointment coming up, even though this uh, this this Um, ruling happened on Friday, keep your appointment and still go. Um, So yes, it is justifiable rage and anger. uh, And, you know, we're, we're doing okay here in Connecticut, but also should be looking out for other folks too. As I mentioned uh, in the 6-3 majority opinion, I wanted to highlight in the dissent, uh, Justices Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kagan stating, no one should be confident this majority is done with its work. The right Roe and Casey recognized does not stand alone. To the contrary, the court has linked it for decades to other settled freedoms involving bodily integrity, familiar relationships, and procreation. So, Claudine, I wanted you to respond to what this ruling means for other cases, considering the concurring opinion, Justice Thomas wrote that the court should reconsider Griswold, Lawrence, and Obergefell. These are all cases establishing rights to contraception, same-sex consensual relations, and same-sex marriage. Yeah, so uh, as as you just mentioned, the opinion itself 
claims it isn't coming for other rights, but the justices who wrote that opinion have proven time and time again that they will say one thing and then do quite differently later on. Dobbs itself is an example of that with justices, uh, uh, you know, lying on con- lying to Congress that Roe was established law using Dobbs to overturn Roe. So let's be clear. States, the federal government, government and the Supreme Court have already been coming for LGBTQ lives, black lives and women lives, including here in Connecticut, where we have seen a couple of examples where trans youth um, have been attacked both in Greenwich and uh, through a legal case about uh, trans girls being able to uh, participate in sports. So Dobbs will only embolden more attacks on people who have already been under attack. We referenced that here in Connecticut, Connecticut leaders say that state laws protect the right to an abortion. Just a couple months ago, uh, a law being passed and signed uh, that strengthened these protections. So uh, remind our listeners about the Connecticut law, where it it also uh, expands, I believe, providers uh, for those seeking abortions, as well as defending the rights of those who may come here from other states, Claudine. Yeah, so uh, along with protecting folks who are seeking abortions from other states and providers, uh, this law also uh, expands and updates the Connecticut abortion law to allow trained, qualified, advanced practice clinicians to perform aspiration abortion to serve our residents and anyone traveling to our state to access legal abortion. The law also protects patients and providers from targeted legal attacks by politicians in other states, passing radical extreme abortions, abortion bans, as we have uh, started seeing on Friday. Have we heard that there are you know, more people coming here seeking abortions uh, since Connecticut became an abortion safe haven, Claudine? Uh, so what we have seen is abortion providers here in Connecticut have already kind of reported an increase in people coming here to seek care uh, in the aftermath of Texas's SB6 law uh, and similar bans across the country before the Dobbs decision on Friday. We expect that that will only increase more now, making more funds like the REACH Fund, which is Connecticut's first uh, uh, abortion fund here, uh, even more critical to help people in need. What I also do want to highlight um, um, is this critical, the, the intersections of people being able to access abortion care and people's identities and their economic status, right? Uh, so I don't think it's fair to assumption that anybody that is experiencing an abortion crisis uh, in another state that has banned abortions to have the opportunity to access travel state lines to access legal and safe abortion, which is why what happened on Friday is so devastating, uh, maybe not to Connecticut residents explicitly, but to people who just care about reproductive access and reproductive justice in general, we're going to see this uh, the, these total Total abortion bans impact Black, low-income, rural, people who are living undocumented in other states being impacted the most by not having lack, uh, by having lack of access to abortion care and reproductive care overall. Again, you're hearing Claudine Constant here on Where We Live. She's with the ACLU of Connecticut, the Public Policy and Advocacy Director, as we talk about the reversal of Roe v. Wade. Uh, We've mentioned several times uh, that Connecticut laws uh, protect uh, the right to seek an abortion in our state. And we know that not everyone agrees with these laws. Uh, Jessica Power is a senior at UConn, also president of the school's Students for Life group. She told Connecticut Public's Catherine Shen that, 
quote, Connecticut has some extreme abortion laws, and quote, that makes our work at the state level even more important in promoting a pro-life culture in Connecticut. Uh, meanwhile, Senator Blumenthal uh, released a statement on Friday, uh, you know, making sure that people know that just because uh, this uh, reversal happened doesn't mean that um, that technically Connecticut and other states that that support and and provide uh, supports for abortion are safe. There could be a national ban on abortion in Congress if there's a flip in power. How do you respond to that, Claudine? Uh, <laughs> which part? <laughs> the national ban um uh so from the the national perspective i think that's why it's so critical for people on the ground uh to keep doing the work that we are doing which is you know donating to um donating to abortion funds that exist not only here in connecticut but across the country um you know i it's it's hard it, Part of me wants to say, show up to the polls and vote, 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 right? But also, again, recognizing the intersections of uh, people who are, you know, kind of struggling to, I would say, believe in believe in people in power um, is 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 real, right? But I will I will go ahead and say that's why it's so important for people to organize, to vote, to speak their minds, to continue showing up locally because we know local municipal work feeds up um, to state and then thusly feeds up to national. Uh, and we just kind of have to hold the line at this point. Mm. Uh, we know that Connecticut residents as well as other Americans have been thinking about what they can do to help protect abortion rights. You've mentioned a couple times that there's a fund to help people access abortions. Joining us now with more is Liz Gustafson, who's state director of Pro-Choice Connecticut and co-founding board member of the REACH Fund. Liz, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So tell us about the REACH Fund, when it was created and who it's for. So the REACH Fund, which stands for Reproductive Equity, Access, and Choice, is a new nonprofit organization, an abortion fund that will provide financial assistance for abortion care in Connecticut, and we will work directly with clinics in our state to provide monthly block grants, which can be utilized to help lower patients' out-of-pocket costs. And we were founded in 2021 by a group of individuals who believe that healthcare is a human right and abortion is a critical part of healthcare. We are an all volunteer organization and through our own experiences as abortion patients, abortion providers and advocates for abortion access, we know that financial barriers are a serious roadblock to accessing care, even here in Connecticut. When you talk about the, the costs of abortion, can you tell us more about this and how it can be a barrier? Yeah, um, so folks who may need financial assistance for their abortion care, um, that is due to a number of reasons, such as um, folks who have a federal insurance plan, so that includes uh, federal employees or military service members, um, that type of insurance does not cover abortion care for their policyholders due to the Hyde Amendment. Um, folks who have private insurance, um, but their policy may not cover abortion. Um, some private insurances do cover abortion, but require patients to pay a very high deductible. Um, this also includes undocumented people 
um, who don't have the ability to apply for Medicaid or any insurance, uh, folks who are experiencing homelessness that may not have the necessary documents to apply, um, and people with special circumstances where using their private insurance or Medicaid would jeopardize their living situation, safety, or their relationship with their loved ones if the patient, if they knew that the patient received abortion care. Um, and the cost really varies. Um, so for medication abortion, it can range between $576 to $662. Um, and then for in-clinic abortion care, it, you know, gets more expensive uh, depending on the gestation period. So so this is a newly created fund. I believe it opened just last uh, Wednesday. And so how much are you trying to raise at the, this time, Liz? And, and what are you hearing from not only um, Connecticut residents, but others that are concerned about this right being protected? So our goal is $50,000 for our first our first goal is $50,000, and over the weekend, we have reached a $10,000 mark, which is incredible. And um, once we have reached the initial fundraising amount of $50,000, we will begin um, distributing the block grants to the clinics here in Connecticut to provide financial assistance. And folks that we've talked to over the weekend and since we've launched have been really, really supportive and looking for many ways that they can do their own fundraisers. We've had bakeries do fundraisers and the support has been really incredible. And we are so honored to be doing this work. We'll be tweeting out a link at where we live for those who are interested in learning more about the REACH Fund. Uh, Claudine Costin is still with us from the ACLU of Connecticut. Can you respond uh, to that outpouring uh, with this newly created fund, Claudine? Uh, I, I love that, right? I think, you know, when we, I, I have a couple of feelings. <laughs> when we think about um, abortion care, um, abortion care is one part of reproductive care, right? But we also often just think about abortion care as the act of having abortion and not what it means to be able to safely access abortion and all of the uh, things that intertwine into abortion access, uh, which includes being able to pay um, for the services or being able to safely find the person that understands uh, and sees you as a human and doesn't dehumanize you for your, your right to choose. Uh, and so I think it's really great that we have um, a fund out here that that is doing just that, that's not only addressing the act of receiving an abortion, but all of the steps that it takes to to, uh, one of the greatest barriers that it takes to be able to safely uh, exercise your right to choose. So we appreciate you, Liz, and everyone at the REACH Fund. When you talk about access to care, you know, the implications uh, for people seeking birth control, fertility treatments, pregnancy treatments, Claudine, and how we might see OBGYNs respond uh, to this ruling, uh, you know, limiting care, moving out of states where there is a ban. 
Yeah. So similar to what I said about people who may be unable to travel across state borders to access um, a safe and legal abortion, well, those are the same folks that will be impacted uh, by providers who are rightfully so afraid of, uh, you know, some kind of legal persecution or, uh, you know, being being demonized for, um, you know, providing people with uh, a safe and legal abortion, right? Uh, and so we'll start to see people um, not being able to access basic uh, basic uh, OBGYN care, which could include annual checkups, uh, cancer screenings, if someone is experiencing some kind of miscarriage crisis, if someone is going through an ectopic pregnancy. Uh, I just read something on Twitter the other day about a nurse who, as soon as the total abortion bans happened, they had a patient come in experiencing an, an ectopic ectopic pregnancy and it ended up rupturing and they couldn't do provide the care that they needed to provide, which is technically considered an abortion uh, because they were living in a state that uh, that has totally abandoned abortion care. Right. Uh, and so the ripple effects are not only going to be on people seeking seeking the right to exercise their right to choose, but people who are just trying to uh, receive care in some shape or way for a thing that's a part of our bodies, our uteruses. Uh, and so the, the impact is going to be traumatic and deadly. Liz Gustafson again is here with us on the phone, State Director Pro-Choice Connecticut. Did you want to add anything there, Liz? Absolutely. Um, the REACH Fund of Connecticut believes in a world uh, in which access to abortion is free from financial and logistical barriers, stigma, and political interference. And so we are committed to working towards that future where the life path of all people is not determined by systemic oppressions, uh, people's identities or circumstances, but by their own autonomy and ambitions. And we are incredibly honored to be doing this critical work alongside Connecticut's incredible advocates who are fighting to protect and expand reproductive freedom. Mm. Uh, we heard from Constanza, who tweeted, you know, great to hear about the efforts here in our state and to have such focused reproductive justice work here in Connecticut. Uh, Claudine, when we talk about these funds to help those access abortion, is this rare in or is this something that I know this is the first one in Connecticut, but in terms of what you're seeing in other states that still protect the right as well? Uh, so I actually think both Liz and I can speak to this. Um, uh, there are abortion uh, abortion funds um, all over the country. Uh, and like I said, abortion has become so seriously stigmatized um, that it is difficult for folks to find traction, especially in states where, uh, you know, total abortion bans have uh, are happening right now. Um, but, you know, for Connecticut, it is amazing that it exists here. And I, I again, I think Liz can speak to that better than I can. Liz Gustafson? I can just add that um, national and local or state abortion funds do play an important role in the ecosystem of access to abortion care and also promoting reproductive equity. So there are funds across the country, even in states where Roe is upheld by their state law, um, in addition to there are national level abortion funds as well. And also practical support funds that help with 
um, other logistics such as travel, uh, child care expenses, and things like that. Thank you for clarifying that. You're hearing Liz Gustafson here on Where We Live, State Director of Pro-Choice Connecticut, also co-founding board member of the REACH Fund. Again, you can learn more at reachfundct.org. Liz, thank you for your time today. Thank you so much for having me. Also great to hear from Claudine Constant, Public Policy and Advocacy Director at the ACLU of Connecticut. We'll probably be talking again, Claudine, in the next few <laughs> months. Thank you for your time today. Thank you so much for having me. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. After the break, coming up, Ken Burns presents a new two-part PBS documentary premiering tonight on the youth mental health crisis. We're going to preview the film just ahead. You can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Tonight, PBS premieres a two-part documentary produced by Ken Burns about the youth mental health crisis in America. It's called Hiding in Plain Sight, and it brings viewers the stories of 21 young Americans, including a New Haven woman who, was, who are living with mental health challenges. Now, many who struggle with mental health also struggle with stigma that comes with having mental illness. The stigma comes from a legitimate fear that if other people know that this illness is present, they will treat you differently, ostracize you, they will not include you. Psychologist Dr. Sarah Vinson from the documentary. Joining us now with more on Zoom is Eric Ewers, co-director and editor of the PBS documentary, Hiding in Plain Sight, Youth Mental Illness. Eric, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Our listeners can join as well, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Hiding in Plain Sight, why did you choose that name? <laughs> well, it, it's something that we realized very, very quickly, um, that this mental health crisis in the country literally is hiding in plain sight. Um, so many kids, um, young people in school, in the workplace, um, they put up this facade on the outside that everything's fine, but inside, um, some people have said, but inside I was dying. Um, so it, it's, it's 
uh, it is a crisis that's hiding in plain sight, but we always say, so is the solution. It's also hiding in plain sight, which is to speak out and to speak up. And so did you have a personal connection uh, to the work that you and your brother did on this film? We most certainly did. Um, you know, uh, this film taught us so much about ourselves. And I think that's one of the gifts that this film gives to our audience. Um, basically, for Christopher and I, we um, growing up, we knew nothing about mental health. Um, we were never taught anything. Um, there was no curriculum. There was it was don't talk about it. But we did know something about mental illness. We knew that um, our family was dysfunctional. We knew that there were um, things that weren't quite right with ourselves. Um, my parents actually had me go to a psychiatrist when I was seven years old for about four years. And, um, you know, supposedly I did change whatever um, pattern that I was, you know, whatever I was demonstrating. But um, I've learned now that if the family doesn't change along with the person, then that person will likely go right back into what they uh, were experiencing. So, yes, it's been quite a... Um, remarkably long and difficult mental health journey for both my brother and I. Mm. Well, when we think about the, the youth mental health crisis, I know on this show we've highlighted several times you know, that, that it has become a crisis even before the pandemic. And we know now the U.S. Surgeon General uh, issued an alert uh, late last year about you know, how dire it has become. Uh, you know, watching the film Hidden in Plain Sight, you're speaking directly to people who have experienced mental illness, the stigma, the discrimination. And it's very different from when you think about conversations about youth mental health, where journalists might talk to the parents and just the filmmakers to so talk about that approach, Eric? That's a great, great uh, comment and question. Um, we realized very quickly, we started by interviewing uh, experts in the in the, uh, mental health care field. And we quickly realized that if we're doing a film on youth mental health, um, or rather youth mental illness, that we weren't getting to the heart of the matter. We weren't learning anything about it. Um, and so we changed course and we decided to try to uh, find uh, young people from all over the country across many diversities and cultures and genders, um, different symptoms, degrees of severity. We wanted to kind of create a tapestry of human lived experience um, so that the audience can literally look and stare, stare at these people in the face and, and hear what it is like, where it came from, um, how it feels, so that we we humanize what is a stigmatized topic. And I, I think through that, it it gives the power to the kids, to the young people. They are the experts of their own experience. And uh, so we, we just want to give that opportunity to the American public and perhaps the world to better understand what is really going on. Mm -hmm. Was it difficult, though, to find the children or young adults that uh, feel comfortable sharing the story because of the stigma that we addressed at the top of the interview, Eric? Again, I think we've learned so many things while while making this film. And yes, there there is a lot of people who would just not step forward um, because of the the reasons you had just said. But we also found that 
a lot of young people who have um, our first episodes called the storm and for obvious reasons. And I think a lot of the young people who have been through the storm, they realize that how they got out of it was by talking and by speaking up and the cathartic relatability of talking with someone else, whether it's a friend, a parent, um, uh, a minister, whoever it is, um, a teacher, once you get it out, it's you, you're releasing something. And so these wonderful, we call them heroes in the film because they are, they were like Yanari. She wanted to tell her story. She wanted it out there. Um, and it's a, it's a remarkable thing that these brave young men and women um, have done for our film. We'll be hearing from Yaneri Acevedo coming up on Where We Live. You're hearing now Eric Ewers, co-director and editor of the PBS documentary Hiding in Plain Sight that premieres tonight. It's a two-part uh, film. It'll be on Connecticut Public Television tonight at 9. I want to take a, a quick call, and you can join us as well, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Michael in Ashford. Michael, what did you want to share? Hi, uh well, I'm older now. I'm I'm 61, and I I had all my life. I've I've grappled with uh, depression, especially, and the the teenage and college years were particularly uh, difficult. Uh, and then you know I know it, it's so trite to to want to send a message that uh, you know life is long. Uh, Things change, and, and the person that you may be at age 15 is is going to be a different person at, you know, 35. Correct. And, yeah, and it's, you know, it's tragic because because I've been in hospitals. I've, I've seen so many people in worse shape than I was, um, and, and I, you know, I've lost people. Mm -hmm. And I just urge families especially uh, to just take a long view and do whatever, whatever it takes, but just hang on and, and do your best. Thanks. Mm -hmm. thank, thank you, Michael. Yeah, I, I like what, what he said. Um, there's two things that I immediately picked up on. When he said, um, I saw people who were in far worse shape than I was, I think that's an interesting thing. Um, to say it's very true. Um, Patrick Kennedy says in our film, he says, why do people, why do they not seek help? Because many people say, well, it's not that bad. And then Patrick follows by saying, well, compared to who? It's a very personalized illness. Um, so it is really hard to gauge your own ability to, to address it when you're looking at someone else who might be demonstrating far worse symptoms. Um, and the other thing he said about age being younger versus in his thirties, the fact that, um, you know, when you're younger, you think your life is normal because you're living it. You haven't had that time, that opportunity to grow older, experience more. And then once you do, if you can, you turn back and you start reflecting on your past. And we that's why we have a couple people, I think it's about four or five people who are adults telling their stories in the film about 
what it was like for them when they were teenagers, because they have a different perspective um, than people who are still in the storm or have recently um, come out of it. So, uh, yeah, I think they're both excellent points. You also have parents uh, in the the film, and you know, when I was watching it and thinking about just what many of us have gone through during the pandemic and the questions that parents have and, you know, or caregivers yes. about when to intervene and how and what happens if they live in a place like a care desert where there aren't a lot of providers. We've heard that even in Connecticut. Uh, the wait list is long for care. Yes. Um, you know, Tom Insel, uh, who's a former director of the uh, National Institute of Mental Health, he said in the film that it's it's fundamentally embarrassing our mental health care system in America right now. It is so far behind our um, health care system. And it it is a problem. Um, There are a lot of care deserts. We have stories in the film about care deserts. Um, And, you know, it's something that's going to take time to try to unravel. Um, So once again, it just goes back to that. If, you know, when do you intervene? You intervene when your children start becoming social. You intervene at the very beginning, early prevention, early detection. Um, Try to gauge what is normal. Seek that education, whether it's on the internet or books or what have you, you're a pediatrician. What is normal versus abnormal, in quotes, um, with with early development, developmental behavior? Um, That way, and invest that time. Listen to your children. My God, listen to them. Whether you agree or don't agree, their voices are powerful. And that was, you know, the big message for parents, I believe, in this film is a lot of these young people were telling us things on camera for millions of people across the country to hear that their own parents didn't know. Now that says something. Again, you're hearing director Eric Ewers here on Where We Live. Uh, he's co-director, a filmmaker. Uh, when we talk about this new PBS documentary, documentary premiering tonight, Hiding in Plain Sight, Youth Mental Illness. Uh, again, you can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. You had mentioned that you know, everyone's story is different, and even the way they experience trauma can be very individual and also pervasive. It can permanently alter someone's mental health. Health. I wanted to play a clip. This is Key Dunning, who's a mental health counselor featured in Hiding in Plain Sight. Let's take a listen. I may have an adolescent or a child that comes to me who's witnessed some horrific thing, something that no one could ever imagine, suffered at the hand of a parent or an auntie or an uncle or a coach or a trusted person, even your friend. And someone says to them, That's a long time ago. You just need to get over that. That's not how it works. Time can erase a little bit of the the pain, but they are forever changed. Eric, tell us why you wanted to include that perspective as well. Well, Sarah Vinson, um, a psychiatrist in the film Child Psychiatrist, says earlier that... um, People always wonder, where does this come from? Where does this crisis, this illness come from? And there's a genetic component. And then there is also lived experience, life experiences, um, i.e. trauma. And 
she says it's not either or it's both and that is so so true um we typically think of trauma as something just cataclysmic but trauma for mclean in the film was that he was walking down a hallway mclean's 11 years old um and he's talking about when he was at age nine he's walking down a whole hallway in school and he smiled to some some kids and they didn't smile back and that was a trigger and that just triggered this whole what is my um value who am i do why do people not like me so trauma can be it's it's very again very personalized and of course we have some young people in the film who were abused um either mentally or physically um trauma of uh living in poverty uh trauma of racial profiling um gender um uh, discrimination um, these are remarkably powerful things that can deeply, deeply affect um, your mental health journey. Um, it can really pull you in directions. Um, they're triggers. And then from there, um, if you don't get the help or the understanding of um, what just happened, you just kind of keep going downhill. I wanted to take another call. Catherine's calling in from West Hartford. Catherine, what did you want to share? Oh, hi. I just wanted to talk about the power of recovery, the speak up and speak out whole theme here, because as parents, I absolutely agree with the previous caller about how important it is to do everything you can to try to get your kid to recovery, because recovery is an amazing experience to witness as a parent. Um, my daughter went through a 10-year journey um, of anorexia, depression, anxiety, and it really started out with not really liking who she was. Her personality qualities didn't fit in with the group. And now in recovery, it's it's remarkable because all those qualities that she didn't like when she was 12 are now those that she embraces so beautifully. Her super creativity, her super introversion, her queerness, everything that was shoved down because of um, that feeling of insecurity is now what makes her who she is. And so really pushing through as parents to advocate for your kids, speaking up and speaking out all along the way, because now that's all she does. She speaks up, she speaks out, and it really um, gives her this sense of worth and, and purpose in life. And it's great to see as a parent. And it's Thank your you. wonderfully supportive parents. And um, I, I couldn't agree more with you. I think that support and that love, I mean, it, if they don't have that, how are they supposed to deal with it? They don't. It hides in plain sight. And again, you're hearing Eric Ewers, co-director and editor of the PBS documentary, Hiding in Plain Sight, Youth Mental Illness, premiering tonight on Connecticut Public Television at 9, as well as across the country. The importance of speaking up and speaking out, as, as Catherine mentioned. Coming up after the break, we're going to hear from one of the young Americans. This film profiles a New Haven woman who decided to tell her story. You can join us. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking about a new two-part PBS documentary airing tonight on Connecticut Public Television about the mental health crisis among youth in America. It's called Hidden in Plain Sight. One of the filmmakers is Eric Ewers, who's with us on Zoom. This documentary features conversations with more than 20 young Americans, including a Connecticut resident. Uh, Eric, tell us how you found Yaneri Acevedo. Uh, we um, did a lot of um, traveling to different places and meeting people, meeting experts, um, and it, actually meeting Yaneri, <clears throat> excuse me, was quite organic. Um, we spoke to some people at Bradley Hospital in Connecticut, I believe, and they, um, we we said that we were looking for, you know, there were some gaps in in um, some of the symptoms. Um, we, and we wanted to, you know, in the film and we wanted to make sure we filled in those gaps and, um, the director of that facility put us in touch with someone at Yale. Um, and, uh, she, we told her what we were looking for and she said, oh, I have the perfect person. And I have to say the first day, um, the first moment we met Yanari was on a zoom, um, call and, she lit up our lives in the room and she said, thank you so much for wanting to tell my story. Right out of the gate, this young woman was so determined to get her story out there. And Yaneri Acevedo is with us on Zoom now. Yaneri, welcome to the show and thank you for coming on. Yeah, thank you for having me. Tell us a little bit about your story and why you felt it was so important to tell it to this national audience. Yeah, so throughout my life, I in my family, we weren't the type to speak on mental health. It was more of, you know, you're not depressed, you're just having a bad day or things similar to that. So for me, it was I couldn't have that outlet for my family. So I wanted to look elsewhere where I would search it up on YouTube, see if anyone could speak about their um, symptoms or on Google, if there was anything that could give me clarity to that. And so I always seek someone who could relate or could tell me like, oh, I've been through something similar and it's it's okay to go through that. So for me, and this opportunity provided that for while I was a kid looking for an outlet, this was the outlet I was really looking for, some type of just film or something similar to that where they speak on mental health and they speak on not only one person, but multiple people across multiple different mental health issues. Uh, when we when we watch the film, you tell your story about what happened to you and how adults responded to you. But when were you first diagnosed with a mental illness, Yanari? Um, I believe I was first diagnosed, I was about 13 years old. Um, that's when I was diagnosed with anxiety and depression. And when uh, when you were telling your story, you know, I was so sorry to hear about some of the ways people treated you, especially in, in school, uh, friends who teased and bullied you, and you also um, experienced a, abuse. And so when all of this was happening, you didn't feel like you had anyone to turn to? No, I really didn't. And even with like my friends, I was, you know, anxious about talking to them because 
the stigma around it and how I was in fear of how everyone would react because of how my family reacted. And that really heavily impacted how I wanted to communicate about my mental health. And once that you were diagnosed, were you able then to see a therapist to get care to help you? Can you describe that journey for us? Yeah, so I had entered a psychiatric ward where I spoke to a psychiatrist about the symptoms I was having with the audio hallucinations and the visual. They had, you know, told me there's a great program for you where they provide treatment for kids with similar symptoms. And once I started with that, my therapist was actually a um, woman who has experienced what I've experienced and very similar symptoms. So it felt very validating to for her to speak to me and tell me like, oh, I've had this too. And for her to actually treat someone who is experiencing what she experienced in high school. Mm -hmm. And as you were more comfortable telling your story and getting help, uh, you were able to then learn that, you know, some of the symptoms that you experienced were also symptoms that family members had. Yes. Yeah, so um, I, when I started treatment, it, my sister had actually come up to me and was asking me about therapy and she was looking into it. And she had told me that she actually saw visual hallucinations as well. And we started discussing the different type of symptoms and it really just connected. So I had put her in contact through my therapist where they gave her another therapist to treat her. Mm -hmm. uh, it's it's so good to hear from you. I have to ask you, how are you doing today? I'm doing really great. Um, just recently got a new job and I'm um, you know, doing really good in college. So everything is, is really looking up for me. Uh, you know, people around the country will be seeing your story as well as these other young Americans, again, talking about uh, mental illness as well as the stigma that they felt, uh, you know, sometimes feeling isolated from others. And so as you're telling your story, you know, what are you hearing from your family and your friends about, you know, your courage to come forward to share it? Um, well, I have more support from um, my friends. They're very excited because, again, they have also experienced depression and anxiety. And they, they're they even surprised, like, to have the confidence to tell things that are, you know, people turn to give you a side eye about <clears throat> my trauma. And they tell me I have a lot of confidence and I'm very brave. My family is also very supportive, but... Um, I don't think not as much as uh, my friends because they can really relate. Well, I'm glad to hear that you have that that support uh, in your life now. Eric Ewers, you're still with us. Uh, I understand I that this documentary is part of a, a larger public media mental health initiative. Uh, so the conversation doesn't end after this film. You know, it's so funny you say that because, you know, I've worked with Ken Burns for 32 years on many, if not most of his films. And I've always found that when you get to the point of broadcast, that marks the end, um, the end of a, a long and wonderful journey, creative journey, making a film. This film marks the start. It's the start of a mission. It's the start of something much bigger than the film itself. Um, and we're very, very excited. We partnered with WETA in Washington, D.C., and they have 
a platform they had been developing and put out to go along with our film for over two years. And uh, um, it's called wellbeings.org. And it's really a perfect kind of compliment because we're looking, we're staring mental illness in the face and saying, this is what it looks like and this is how it feels. And they're providing the educational resources and platforms where they can help people negotiate this very complicated system um, if they want to seek help. Um, so it's been a great relationship and I'm very proud to say that they're supporting Ewers Brothers, um, Chris and I, to move forward doing a second film, which we had always intended on adult mental health. And by studying and following and hearing the experiences of adults, we believe that we can also kind of negotiate the, the different areas of mental health care and allow a bigger conversation about everything from health insurance to um, care deserts to medicine, pharmaceuticals. We can have this bigger com uh, public policy, uh, this bigger conversation about um, mental health that I think balances out. We've only, we're only halfway through our journey with telling the stories of youth. That's Eric Ewers, again, co-director and editor of this new PBS documentary, Ken Burns, executive producer. It's called Hiding in Plain Sight, Youth Mental Illness, premiering tonight at 9 on Connecticut Public Television. We'll share a link on our website for more information. Eric, a pleasure to hear from you. Thank you. Oh, thank you for having us. And to Yanari Acevedo, who was featured in the documentary. She's one of 21 young Americans who tell their story. She lives in New Haven. Yanari, thank you for your time. Yeah, thank you guys so much for having me. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Tess Terrible. Our tech producer is Kat Pastor. We'll be back tomorrow.